0: All right, our sermon text this morning is First Peter chapter one verses three through five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Thus, in the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this chance to gather around your word. Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen. Today is Reformation Sunday. We rejoice at the recovery of many things that were lost, kind of like going up in the attic finding some old stuff that somebody forgot and thought was useless, no good, not very good. And these men worked diligently. A lot of them gave their lives, gave their possessions, gave things up in order to follow after what the scriptures taught. And a lot of what we do here on Sunday mornings, what you do throughout the week, things you have, are fruit of the Reformation, the Bible you have in your hand is a fruit of the Reformation. Before that, the Bible was mainly in Latin. And then Luther and Wycliffe and different guys came along and translated into the language of the people. And now you have Bibles. I mean, you have lots of Bibles. You have all these Bibles in your house. Probably, some of you probably have quite a few. And if you go back to pre-Reformation days, that would have been shocking. How can everybody have a Bible? How does that work? Okay, so they recovered a lot of those things. The Lord's Supper, they recovered the right view of the Lord's Supper, right view of preaching, right view of pastoral care. Lots of things were recovered at the Reformation. But perhaps, above all, was the recovery of salvation by grace through faith. The recovery of salvation by grace through faith. Over years of false teaching, the clear teaching of the gospel had become murky, like a window that was smeared with dirt on it. Couldn't see what was inside. Couldn't understand what was going on. And the reformers came along and cleared that out. They cleared out that murkiness and brought out this diamond of the gospel, brought it front and center and showed it to the people. And people understood once again what it meant to be saved. Think about Luther's great question that he had was, how is a man to be saved? How is a man to be saved, Luther asked. That was his great question because he did not feel like the church was giving him the right answer. Mainly the church was not giving him the biblical answer. And so Luther wanted an answer to that question. So he asked, how can we be saved? And that is the great truth that came out of the Reformation among many. But that is the great truth. And so in God's providence today, what we're going to do is look in 1 Peter. And we'll look at this great Reformation or this great salvation that God has For us, we're going to look at it from various angles, and Peter tells us about this salvation. So here in on Reformation Day, providentially, we're going to talk about the great salvation of God. And there's going to be four things: the source of our salvation, the ground of our salvation, the security of our salvation, and the goal of our salvation. Yes, at one time I was a Baptist, so I have these outlines in my head. I roll through these outlines. I don't literate them yet. I haven't gotten there yet, but I will one day probably stand up here and go A, A, A. All my, we'll start with A or B or something like that. Today we just have four points, the source of our salvation. The first one is the source of our salvation, and the source of our salvation is God's abundant mercy and his great power. The passage begins with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. It's a great mercy. It ends with, we'll talk about a little bit, this a little bit more in a few minutes, but it ends with who are kept by the power of God, verse 5. So we have this great mercy of God and this great power of God, and this is the source of our salvation. We cannot save ourselves. Man is completely unable to rescue himself. Man is dead. Man is lost Our hearts are hard. Man cannot rescue himself. He cannot save himself. God must come and rescue him. Man can never be the source of his own salvation. He can never be the source of his own salvation. You cannot be the fountain of your own righteousness. We cannot save ourselves. We must be saved from the outside. Adam and Eve tried this. They sinned and they go out there and they gather some leaves up and they say, hey, guess what? We're gonna save ourselves. We're gonna cover up our sin with these leaves. And God says... No, no, that doesn't work. I have to kill this animal. That's how it works. God has to come in and save us. Abraham, down in the land of Ur, worshiping idols with his dad. God comes and saves Abraham and calls him out. And he calls him out, sends, brings him to the promised land. Israel in Egypt. Israel in Egypt. Egypt. Israel could not save herself. There's nothing Israel could do. She was weak. She was powerless. She could not be rescued. And God came and saved Israel and brought Israel out. We are just. Like that, Egypt is a picture of sin, Pharaoh is a picture of Satan. That is what we're like. We're trapped, we're slaves. We daily increase our sin by thought, word, and deed, and we daily increase our debt to God. Our debt of sin, we cannot save ourselves. God and His abundant mercy and His great power must come in and rescue us. And there's an old testament passage I really like that illustrates this Isaiah 59. I won't read the whole thing, but it begins with our sins have separated us from our God. And then God says this, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far off. Truth has fallen in the street. Equity cannot enter. So truth fails. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it and displeased him that there was no justice. So God looks down. He sees there's nothing. Something's wrong here. And he saw there was no man. And he wondered that there was no intercessor. There's nobody to rescue my people. Who's going to rescue my people? Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, helmet of salvation on his head, he put on the garments of vengeance for his clothing. And it goes on to talk about the Redeemer. God came down and saved Israel. God came down and rescued people rescued his people by his great mercy and by his great power okay another passage i don't read it but titus 3 5 has the same language here as first peter 3 where it talks of us about us being born again through a regeneration by god's mercy the source of our salvation is god's abundant mercy and his great power the source of our salvation does not lie within us okay and why does it have to be both mercy and power okay why are both of these necessary well if god was merciful but not powerful, he might desire to save us but would be unable to do so because he does not have the power to wrestle us from wickedness. If God was powerful but not merciful, he would have the ability to save us but not the desire to save us because the only one who wants to save us is someone who's merciful and kind. No one's going to save us because of all our great stuff because we don't have any. So God must be both merciful and powerful. He must be both willing and able to save. And that's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying God in his abundant mercy has begotten us again, has saved us. Okay. It's not a dead God, not a weak God. I think a lot of times we function almost like deists. We view God as someone who's far off, separate from us. Okay. Peter in this passage is reminding us of the power of God to save us, the power of God to deliver us. And what does this mean for us? Well, I mean, it means a lot of things, but fundamentally it means we pray. We pray. God is the one who rescues. God is the one who delivers. We give thanks for our own salvation. We pray for the salvation of others. We lift up our voices in prayer because God is merciful and powerful. He loves us. He cares for us. And he is strong enough to act in our lives. Both of those together make him the source of our salvation. So first, the source of our salvation is God's great mercy and his abundant abundant mercy and his great power. Now, what is the ground of our salvation? Peter goes on to say he's begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And one of the things that happened in the Reformation is it moved our assurance of salvation outside of sort of this subjective realm and moved it into a more objective realm, okay? And the objective realm was Jesus. Okay. Jesus became the assurance of our salvation. Now, there's other things that flow downstream from that. We'll look at that as we go through Peter. But the foundation of our salvation, the thing we hang on, is the work of Jesus Christ. And specifically, the resurrection of Christ is what Peter mentions in this passage because he's talking about a living hope. We've been born again to a living hope. Okay? So we're alive. This is not a dead hope. This is a living hope. Okay? That's because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, you are the most pathetic, we're the most pathetic group of people that the world has ever seen because we're placing all our hope and we're doing all of this in something that's empty and vain and worthless. But Paul goes on to say, of course, but he has been raised from the dead. And so we have this living hope, this great hope, this great, resurre- this great hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not a dead hope, but a living hope, okay? And what is hope? Well, hope, we often use it very kind of Soft. You know, I hope to get that job or I hope to get that girl or I hope to get some money or I hope to whatever, whatever the case may be, you know, hope to get that house, okay? Well, in the Bible, it is more like a certain expectation, okay? It's a certain expectation of something. When you say, I hope to rise from the dead, you're not saying, well, maybe one day I might rise from the dead if I'm lucky. You're saying, I am certain and sure I will rise from the dead, okay? I'm certain and sure I'll rise from the dead. And our hope cannot be disappointed. In life, often we have things that we want, dreams we have that are often disappointed, that are often thwarted. Maybe you didn't get the girl. Maybe you didn't get the job. Maybe you didn't get the house. Our hopes are often disappointed. But when it comes to Christ and his work, our hope is never disappointed. Jesus never disappoints in the end. He is always better than advertised. Jesus is always better than advertised. I think about football games. I love football, and there'll be this great game. It's all hyped up. You know, there's two big teams. They're evenly mashed. Everything's, it's going to be a close, tight game. Think these Super Bowls back in the 90s, you know, with the Bills and things like that. And there are supposed to be super tight games. Super Bowl, really tight game. You get there, it's like 52 to 7. Okay? <laughs> Disappointment. Disappointment. maybe a movie you really thought was going to be great. You get in there, you watch it. Disappointment. Okay? That was just not that good of a movie. Jesus never disappoints. He rose from the dead. Anything you can imagine that he would give you is better than what he's going to give you, okay? I mean, it's, it's worse than what he's going to give you. What he's going to give you is better than anything you can imagine. The most amazing thing you can think of is not as great as what Christ is going to give to you because he rose from the dead. And Peter says, or, uh, Paul says this in Corinthians. He says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You cannot imagine the goodness that Jesus has for you. This is our living hope. This is what we have a certain expectation of. So, what Peter is saying here is do not trade Jesus and that wonderful, glorious hope for power, pleasure, and compromise here in this life. Don't trade it because that's what's going to be tempted. They're going to be tempted to do it. They're in persecution. Okay, that's what's happening in the book of 1 Peter. So, they're going to be tempted to trade this glorious, living hope for something in this life. And Peter's saying, don't do that. Do not trade this hope. Okay? So, when your hands are weak, when you're discouraged and despairing, Look to Jesus. Lift up your eyes to the one who rose from the dead. Remember the promises given. Remember that he has overcome get, death. Grab a hold of that hope and do not let go. That's the Don't let go. There's a reason Paul sang in prison. There's a reason the martyrs went joyfully to the arenas, which we, we're going to sing about a little bit. The reason the martyrs went joyfully to the arenas is because they had this living hope. Okay, we have this living hope. Okay. So the source of our salvation is God's mercy and power. The ground of our salvation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which gives us this everlasting, this living hope. The content of our salvation is secure. The inheritance is secure. And this is really the main point of the passage here that Peter talks about. He says, we've been begotten again, born again, to a living hope, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. There is nothing secure in this life. Everything we have around us is subject to death, decay, and the ravages of time. Doesn't matter how strong your body is now, how fit you are now, eventually that body will decay. Eventually that will happen. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Eventually. Something could happen to that. Nothing is secure. Nothing is sure. Our cars can wreck, the economy can take. We all know this. This is we don't think this way, but we all know it if we sit down and someone asked us, is your stuff secure? Well, maybe. Well, really, it's not. Is it? It's really not. I remember years ago, a young man out west in one of our churches was driving a truck with a trailer on the back. And the truck began the trailer began to fishtail, and he got in a bad wreck. And there were injuries. I don't know if remember if somebody died or not. He didn't, but there were lots of injuries and other cars were involved. And he ended up being involved in a long legal battle, years of legal battles over this. Just boom, just kept like driving down the road, I don't know what he's carrying horses or whatever, and boom, just like that, everything changes. Everything changes. A good friend of mine up north in West Virginia there had a heart attack a few weeks ago. He's alive, but he had a heart attack now. His whole life. It has changed. And many of you have been through this. You've lost things. You know things are not as secure as you think they are. You know your bank account's not as secure as you think you are. You know your body's not as secure as you think it is. Your relationships are not as secure as you think they are. They are all subject to corruption. But our salvation is not. Our salvation is secure. It is not subject to change. It cannot be defiled. It cannot be taken from us. It cannot be destroyed. It is as sure as the resurrection of Christ from the dead, as sure as the word of the word of God. It cannot be diminished or made unclean. It is reserved by the living God. Okay, and again, Peter, what Peter's emphasizing here is do not trade this everlasting, incorruptible inheritance for some temporary pleasure here in this world. Don't do it, is what he's saying. Because you're gonna be tempted to, bad things are coming. You're going to tempted to trade it. Peter's saying, don't do that. You have this inheritance kept for you in heaven, this inheritance reserved for you in heaven, this incorruptible and undefiled inheritance. But you got this great inheritance, you got to get to it, okay? God's got to bring us to it. So not only is the inheritance reserved, but Peter goes on to say, you are kept by the power of God. The inheritance is kept, but you are as well, Okay? Readers of Peter need to know that God is going to bring them there. God is going to keep them and and keep them from falling away. And the word kept here is a military term. The picture is of guards on top of a castle wall or a fortress, making sure no one enters the fortress and destroys the people inside. That is what God is doing for you. That's what God is doing for you. He's standing at the gate and he's saying, no one's going to touch my people. I'm going to keep them. I'm going to guard them. I'm going to watch them. So not only do we have this great inheritance, but we are, that is kept, but we are being kept as well. And just a great picture of this is Peter on the night of the last supper. Peter's all brave and and bold. I'm never going to sin. I'm never going to fall away all this. And Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. Satan wants you, Peter, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. And that's what Jesus does for us. Jesus prays for us. He says, when you have turned back or when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. Satan wanted Peter. Satan wanted to break in, take Peter, destroy his faith, destroy his life, take him away from Jesus. And Jesus said, nope, not going to let it happen. I'm going to keep him. In Hebrews it says, Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost because he makes intercession for us. So not only do we have this great inheritance that is kept for us and reserved for us, we are kept for the inheritance as well. We are guarded and we are watched. okay? God keeps us. What does that mean for us? It means don't give up. And okay, this is gonna be like a persistent theme in message. Don't give up. A lot of people... We'll talk about this idea of God keeping us and say, well, if God's going to keep us, why do we need to labor? Why do we need to work? Why do we need to do this? But the Bible never talks that way. Every time it talks about God's preservation of us, it talks about our continuing obedience to God. Talking about God's sovereignty over our lives never leads to apathy and lethargy and laziness. That's not where it goes. It leads to action. It leads to obedience because the victory is certain, because the goal is sure, because Jesus rose from the dead. Paul never says, well, God's sovereign of your life. Go sit on your butt. He never says that, okay? That's not what happened. Peter never says this. Paul never says this. Jesus never says this. Verses like this are meant to spur us on to good deeds. We are kept by the power of God. Therefore, keep marching. Keep fighting. Don't give up. When things get hard, don't quit, okay? Don't quit. Do not trade the glorious hope and inheritance that Christ has for you for temporary comfort and pleasure here. Keep marching forward. Keep pressing forward. Your inheritance is sure and certain. Your salvation is sure and certain. Okay? So we've got the source of our salvation, God's power and mercy, the ground of our salvation, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the security of our salvation, and then we finally have the goal of our salvation, which is, well, there's lots of goals of our salvation. Think about what, why does God save us? Well, he saves us for many reasons. But at the top of the list, he saves us so that we might praise God. Back to the beginning of our passage. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, He has begotten us, He's given us this great salvation. So blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of our salvation is doxology. The goal of our salvation is the praise of the living God. That's why God saves us. There's other reasons as well, but ultimately the reason is that we might worship the living God. John Piper's got a great quote. He says, The goal of the church is not missions. That's not the goal. The goal of the church is worship. Missions is a means to an end. The end is the worship of the living God. The means to get there is to go disciple the nations. Disciple, that they might worship the living God. We were made to worship God. We were made to give him praise, to sing the doxology, to sing the glory of our We were made to do this. In the end, we will have all the nations bowing down, worshiping God. Everybody will bend the knee and praise God. Okay. So as we think about this great salvation, we think about his mercy and his power, we think about his keeping our inheritance and keeping us, the end of that should be praise. The end of that should be glorifying God because he is worthy of our praise both in his character and in his works, who he is and what he has done. His wisdom is perfect and mighty. His acts are perfect and mighty. God never makes a misstep. He never makes a misstep. He never wakes up one morning and goes like, oh, well, what, did, what just happened? What did I do? That wasn't very smart. That never happens. Every action of God is perfect. And so we praise him for his work in our lives and we praise him most of all for his salvation that he's given to us through Jesus Christ. So back to the Reformation. One day a prisoner came up to Martin Luther and asked him, why do you preach the gospel every week, Father Martin? Why do you do that? He said, well, because every week you forget. Every week you forget the gospel. And so I have to remind you every time. This is not a sermon with a lot of imperatives, not a sermon with a lot of commands. This is a sermon for you to remember. Remember this great salvation that you've been given. Remember God's mercy. Remember God's power. Remember the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Do not let this great salvation become a footnote in your life. There's a lot of things we can think about, a lot of things we can put our time into, energy and effort, all sorts of political things and theological things, and those might be worthy endeavors, worthy endeavors, things that are worth putting our time into, but at the front of it, we should be thinking about this great salvation, and this great salvation should shape our lives, we should tell our children and our grandchildren, we should tell our mom and dads and our grandparents about this salvation, we should talk about it, it should dominate our lives. So, my encouragement to you this morning is keep this wonderful salvation, this wonderful work of God at the center of your life. Keep it the center of your home. Do not forget, remember what He has done. Remember His power. Remember His mercy. Remember His grace. Remember the resurrection. And remember that all of this is done so that our God might be glorified. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your kindness to us in sending Jesus Christ. We thank you for His resurrection from the dead. We thank you for this inheritance, this living hope, this resurrection that we will have one day. I pray that you would help us to be faithful to Christ to the end of our days. Keep us from swerving off the path. Keep us from abandoning the faith. Keep us faithful to you all through our days, no matter what darkness, no matter what difficulties. Help us to hold tight onto you as you hold tight on us. And we pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.